Welcome to Let's Talk Land, a weekly international land education talk show devoted to learning about land and farms, buying and selling, and ownership, especially for real estate agents and realtors. Hey, learn from the experts, guys. This is free land education. Hard to find out there. Hi, my name's Lou Jewell. I'm an accredited land consultant with Land Pro Real Estate, along with my partner and co-host, Teresa Martin. Good morning, Teresa. Hey, Lou. How are you today? I'm great. Hope yeah, you are. We got a great guest today. Good. Buying and selling homes, land of farms in western Piedmont, North Carolina, or southern Virginia. Hey, give us a shout. We'll help you out. Our office is at 207 East Main Street in downtown Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. Our website's www.mylandpro.com. All of our shows are dedicated to the Realtors Land Institute staff and members. Our national site is www.rliland.com. Listen to me if you're thinking about buying or selling land or farms or ranches. Uh, make sure you go to our website and find a member of our organization. We're highly trained. Uh, we have over 2,000 members nationwide, and uh, there's about 650 accredited land consultants like myself designated around the country. So if you want to save money, contact us. If you want to make money, contact us. We're the experts to help you. Hey, our guest this morning is Mike Marshall. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. We're glad to have you. Where are you calling from? I am in just a little bit east of Dallas, Texas. A little bit's how far? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, not too far. In, about, uh, in Texas, you don't have little bits. Texas or Dallas, and uh, enough to be close enough to get there if I need to, but far enough to keep my sanity. Is it growing out your direction? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just east of Dallas. Yeah. It's a beautiful area. I've been down there several times. I always enjoy coming. Hey, with more than 15 years of experience in land use and development, Mike has been the brains behind an array of focus appreciation projects ranging from obtaining approval of subdivisions and office buildings to commercial changes in use and rezoning projects. And that's what we're going to talk about, Mike, right? Rezoning and other things. He also has been instrumental in creation of new zoning code and future land use plans affecting future development. Keeley is better half. Uh, drives their business with her knack of numbers and systems aligning perfectly with Mike's vision and first approach. They reside in North Texas with their three children and their energetic dog. What's your doggy's name? Mike, what's your doggy's name? Oh, our dog's name is Lily. Lily, okay. I've got Shada here beside me. She's a Jackie, uh, Jackie Russell. She's a female. She says, don't call me no daggum Jack. Amid work, they enjoy watching the kids' sports activities, engaging in lively discussion with a little red wine, and their life in cheers and full embrace. And Mike's real estate journey commenced at the age of 12 and working with his father's property, switching out light switch covers and working on roofing projects. After college, he pivoted to an unrelated career path, emerging in distinguished authority in the intricate realm of land use planning. Where'd you go to school? I went to school at a smaller school in Northern California. It's called Humboldt State University, um, almost on the coast, basically, right beneath the Oregon border. So oh. pretty far away from where I am yeah, right Yeah, I'd say. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a Sonoma County, so just north of San Francisco, and then I kind of finished out high school years in Southern California. I got you. So I spent a lot of time up and down all sorts of parts of California and then made my way out here to Texas. So Mike led the approval in wide range of projects ranging from large residential subdivisions to medical office buildings and even a TV and movie studio campus along the way. During that time, he indicated a critical disconnect between the land use planning and real estate investors. In response, Mike funded the Toulouse 
Property Group, a consulting tailored to bridging the gap. Uh, tell us about your company and how you got it started. Yeah, you know, I pretty much started, you know, working in local jurisdictions and kind of like the planning and zoning office. And as you mentioned, I eventually kind of noticed that there was a disconnect between like um, investors and developers and also like planners as well. And that disconnect essentially was is that a lot of people didn't really see the same opportunities that I was able to see as a professional understanding the zoning and development code and that kind of thing. And so I ended up consulting with these developers on projects um, outside the city that I worked on or worked in, and then eventually was able to kind of build that business and come outside of the, um, the zoning planning job that I had for like 15 years, like I was saying. And then I ended up just consulting on different projects. And then from there, just kind of built my um, consulting and investing business, going along kind of helping investors understand the opportunities that were there in the local zoning and development code. So it was a lot of work regarding like subdivisions and zone changes and site plan reviews and things like that. So a lot of it was very development oriented. So some of the things we're going to talk about is uh, your appreciation strategies. I'm really interested in that and the value of land and its uh, entitlements. Uh, and this is this is totally new. I, I, I've been doing this 30 years, so Teresa and I are anxious to learn about this as well as our listening audience. How zoning can add massive value to real estate, and not all subdivisions are equal. What is the difference, and how to profit from using local zoning code? That's what we want to learn. But let's start with your first one out there. So what is the focus? What is focused appreciation? How does it differ from market and wide appreciation, Mike? Sure. So kind of, you know, market-wide appreciation is the appreciation that I think we're all used to, especially when we think of our homes. And it's basically the appreciation that floats all boats, essentially. So more or less, when you have market-wide appreciation, everybody benefits. But with forced appreciation, you can utilize these strategies, whether the market is going great on its own or it's not. And it's just specific things that you can do to force the appreciation. So the difference really is that with forced appreciation strategies, these are proactive things you can do to increase the value of a property. And it kind of falls into two buckets. One would be operational things you can do, like raising the rent or decreasing the expenses on a property, something like that, that ultimately ends up increasing your net income. Or there are physical things that you can do, like you know, um, adding on to an existing building, or if there's a, like an apartment building with extra land that you could use for RV and boat storage. Or if it's just a vacant piece of land that you're trying to maximize its development potential. Those are the kind of things that we work on is really the physical improvements that you can do to a property to actually force that appreciation or otherwise increase the value of it. So you do this how? By zoning? A lot of times it's, it's either by one of three different projects usually. It's either a subdivision project, a rezoning project, or what we call a site plan approval. And a site plan approval is basically if you have a vacant piece of land and it's zoned appropriately for a multifamily building, and we're going to go in and work with a civil engineer, and we're going to get the actual plans approved by the local jurisdiction. And so the place that we work in, the whole development process as a whole can really be separated into three buckets. One of them is the entitlements world, or the entitlements bucket. That's where I really work in. And that's when you think of, like, public hearings at the planning commission or city council and there are people that are proposing development projects. That's part of the entitlement process. Then the second piece would be, like, engineering permits for getting all your grading work and utility work and those kind of things done. And then the third part of the process is what most people are more familiar with, and that's the building permit process, 
we were getting the building permit approval to actually put sticks in the ground and go vertical. So those are like the three types of buckets that are kind of constitute the development process, but we really focus on the first one, and that's relative to entitlements and getting those first uh, approvals from the local agency. So each state and each county, is, uh, is uh, they have different laws, different zonings, uh, different nomenclature, uh, and, uh, you know, it's not necessarily highest and best use of these zonings, right? So maybe what I'm just visualizing. Yeah, those, you're right on all those things. You know, it's um, every county or city is different regulations. And even though they may, may use common or similar nomenclature, that's always going to be a different. So like an R1 zone in one city will be different than an R1 zone in a different city. So that that is very true. And yes, we're basically looking at it, trying to maximize its highest and best use. And sometimes the zoning that's applicable to the property doesn't really allow for that. And so that's when we would go in and look at actually changing the zoning of the property to be more in line with what that highest and best use would be. And sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you're not. I mean, that's part of this entitlement process is that there is risk that's associated with it. And that's really why there's value to getting these entitlements in place is because you're putting in certainty where otherwise there would be no certainty or very little certainty. So our whole process is going in and actually getting those improvements in place and then selling the property off to a developer or builder. And the developer or builder wants people like us because we're actually adding, again, certainty to the picture by getting those um, entitlements approved. And you're correct. They're not always, you know, it's not 100%. You know, we're not, like, batting 1,000 by any means. But, you know, more often than not, you can actually kind of address the issues, address the concerns, and still come out, out with a really good and positive project. Yeah. I've been privileged to teach one of our RLI classes since 2003 called LAM 101. All of our courses are two-day courses, 16 hours, and exception of one. But uh, in talking about zoning, we talk about home cooking. And that we talk about using local people in these zoning and planning boards uh, to help you manipulate these hurdles as to bringing in a high-powered person from another state. Or And uh, so do you find that relative, too? I find that very, very true. You know, um So what we tend to do is, even though we have projects that we're working on throughout the country, uh, I think almost every occasion we're basically using people that are local with boots on the ground. And it's for a variety of reasons. Number one, they'll know maybe the nuances of the code and things maybe better than somebody like myself might. Um, But they also have relationships, too. I think that's probably the biggest thing is that they know the person that's, you know, working at the planning desk. They may know the city manager or whoever. And we're able to kind of use those relationships, you know, to get our projects approved ultimately. And this doesn't always work that way, but it certainly gives us a better chance of getting that happen. You know, somebody like myself, I'll just be honest, coming from like California and walking into somewhere in rural Texas or even rural North Carolina, it's going to be harder for me, understandably, to kind of get people to like really connect with me and everything like that, you know, and so it's much better for us to be able to utilize people that are local and on the ground for that reason among the other ones that I mentioned as well. Anything else about that subject? I think the big thing is, is that you you really do need to find that local talent that was local professionals, you know, and there's a variety of ways to do it some areas there's only like one or two people that do most of the work in that town and and you talk to the city or the county they'll let you know who that is or there's also other ways if you're in bigger areas where you can do public records requests 
applications that have been submitted to the city for, let's say, like, you know, a multifamily development or something, and you can get that paperwork from the city, and it'll show who those engineers are, who the architects are, and you can go and use that information and contact them. The biggest tip, again, is just to be able to utilize people that have been there in that jurisdiction and have done projects because they have the relationships already established. Can you uh, check and see previous uh, interested parties that may have tried to get the same zoning change unsuccessfully? <laughs> see a track yeah, record? Yeah, that's a great point. That is certainly something that we do. We'll do a full history check on the property to see if there's been zone changes or any other kind of request that's been made on the property because sometimes that gives us a lot of clues as far as maybe public opposition or gives us clues as far as like other people that have worked on the projects or issues that the city or county had with the proposal. So it'll allow us to modify or just to be aware of these things going in, so we're aware of what we're getting into. In some instances, if it's been very, very controversial, then that might be enough to make us actually not proceed with the project. So uh, how does this change the value? We only got about a minute in this segment. How would that change the value of property? by being able to change the zoning on it. Yeah, in some instances, it could be really dramatic. You know, um, some instances, it could be, you know, high six-figure, seven-figure type of um, improvements in the property value just by changing the zoning. And there's one that we're working on right now that that's the case where we're going from an agricultural zoning to a multifamily zoning. That's pretty uncommon to make that kind of leap. But the reality is that in that particular situation, there's a big public park across the street and other kind of um, more dense development, so it does make sense. It's just that the zoning has been in place for a long time as agricultural, and the city was supporting the move to multifamily, and so that can be a really significant value you know, bump in those kind of situations. And that's not always the case, and that's not the average by any means, but it can be significant. Okay. Well, we got off to a good start here, Mike. This is Mike uh, Marshall with uh, Transforming Utilities Properties, uh, Tulsa Property Group. This is uh, Let's Talk Land. Hey, we'd like to thank our sponsors, LandHub.com. <clears throat> Looking for land to buy or sell, LandHub come, previews thousands of properties nationwide. That's LandHub.com and AcreValue, today's sponsor. If you want to know who's in the field down the road and what their land sold for last year, the best place to research land, and it's all free, is on AcreValue. Mike, can you tell us some examples of underutilized properties and how investors can benefit from them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, the examples that I would give you for underutilized properties, the most like classic example would just be a vacant piece of land that you're not utilizing for any purpose. You know, so obviously you can have um, land that is for agriculture, so that definitely has a purpose. But a, kind of a classic example would be if you had a single-family neighborhood and in the middle of all of that, there was one lot that was just vacant and there was nothing on it. That is an underutilized property. It's a property that's not meeting its full potential based on either its current zoning or what the zoning could be changed to. Another example would be even a single-family home that's in the middle of a multifamily zone. And you see that quite often in more urbanized areas where you'll have this single-family home and it's located right next to two apartment buildings or, or townhomes or something along those lines. And in that case, that property is underutilized as well just by definition in that it could be more than what it is today. 
so I think that's really the definition is that, you know, an underutilized property is one that could be more than what it is today based on the zoning that's in place. The one thing that that I'm concerned about, of course, is underutilized properties. Like, is there more, is there becoming more need for multifamily since we are getting more and more people and less and less housing? Do you see any... I think there really is. I mean, there's a lot of areas throughout the country that are experiencing housing shortages. And actually, the National Association of Realtors has a um, housing shortage tracker on their website, which is really interesting. They update it, I think, annually. And it highlights certain cities throughout the country that are experiencing a housing shortage in comparison to the jobs that are coming into the area. And they're tracking primarily the larger cities, so they're not tracking, like, smaller cities like maybe the ones that I live in or something like that. But it gives you a really good indicator of what the need is, kind of on the national level and the regional level as well. And so, yeah, there is a strong need for additional housing units. And as a result, you're seeing a lot of states and local jurisdictions change their zoning laws to be able to um, streamline the development process and get more units on the ground. And so you're seeing that happen. But they're also trying to do it in a way where you're more doing it in infill lots rather than actually out in, like, a rural area. So they're trying to get more units on the ground without sprawling, you know, development. And so they're trying to address the issue without having the common problems that come with development as it's historically happened over, you know, decades. So they're trying to be responsible, but at the same time, there's this high need for housing, and so they need to move fast. And there's such a high need that there's really not a way to build out of it anytime soon so there's a lot of creative things that are trying to make its way through state legislation to be able to kind of um, attack that and then really combat it in a meaningful way yeah i've noticed i don't know how it is out there but here i've noticed that a lot of old factories that have shut down they're converting the factories into townhomes and condos apartments stuff like that Mike, you know, uh, one of my shows several years ago with my accredited land consultant buddies, and I've interviewed probably covered about 45, 46 states, Teresa and I have, and we were talking about development, and uh, a lot of these, not a lot, but there were several areas, uh, Portland, Seattle, uh, uh, and, and the Washington uh, state, uh, where the conservation people uh, designated these circles around towns or areas around the town for conservation, and there's no development allowed there, and uh, and and then of course you get outside of that. Yeah, I've seen that for sure. I mean, whether it be in a conservation easement or if it's um, if it's done just by zoning, so they change the zoning, but the zoning creates like a, maybe like an open space zoning or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, you'll you'll tend to see those things in certain areas of the country, certainly within more of the urbanized, um, developed areas in. You know, without getting into, like, politics and everything like that, you know, red states versus blue states, you can imagine where there's, you know, in some of the blue states there tend to be more of that kind of push towards, you know, um, creating a lot more open spaces through a variety of different means. You know, you'll see that happen. So I saw that happen a lot in California, Oregon, Washington, as you mentioned. So that, that is pretty common. Um, whereas if you go to more rural areas throughout the south, I, I don't see that as often as I do out west. 
Um, so yeah, it definitely happens. And so there's a lot of conflict between that. Cause like you said, there's those that want to be conservation minded, which makes sense. But then there's also those that are really protective of private property rights, which makes sense also. And so there's oftentimes that, you know, push and pull that goes on and it makes it kind of challenging, but yeah, we'll certainly see that sometimes and have to address that. And ultimately what it results in, it really does result in higher land costs you know, as um, compared to the amount of development that you can ultimately get. And I'm not saying that it's um, bad either way, but I think the point is, is that there's a balance between it that has to be come to. Since about 93% of the United States is rural areas, uh, mm-hmm. they're a whole lot easier to work in, at least in our areas. They're pretty comprehensive. Uh, or, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's... <laughs> It's interesting because I think in a lot of like the rural areas, some of the notion of conservation is kind of already baked in, and, and people understand that you know already. Um, and then um, some of the, the push that happens in the more urbanized areas, it happens, um, I guess, just because you know people have a certain desires, a certain ethic that they have in their mind, and they're trying to meet some sort of ideal, and they're trying their best to be able to achieve it. But you have a lot more competing interests, I guess, yeah. is the easiest way to say it when you go into these like highly dense urban. Yeah, and we're seeing quite a migration, at least in, we're licensed in North Carolina and Virginia, of uh, the uh, people moving out of areas uh, uh, with crime and other issues, uh, looking for that right. rural life, you know, instead of passing your coffee cup out the window and your neighbor puts some sugar and cream in it, you know, they want the, they want the 5 to 10 to 20 acres, those are our big sellers in, in our rural markets, right. you know, as opposed to out west yep. where you've got the big ranches, you know. 30,000 acres, and <laughs> it's a different world. But uh, one thing that I wanted to cover too was uh, you had. Let me tell the people about your website. What, what is your website? Sure. Yeah, our website is Tolosa T O L O S A Property Group dot com, and on there you'll find a bunch of information about our services and what we offer. You know, primarily what we do is we you know help um, landowners understand. The, the value of their property and what the potential of the property actually is. So whether they're currently an owner or they're investigating looking at a piece of property, we help them understand the, the constraints and the opportunities that exist. And then from there, we'll even work with them in um, kind of bringing those opportunities to fruition. Yeah, so if you're not driving, uh, and of course a lot of people listen to this on Spotify and Podbeam and the, and the Master website, their leisure time, uh, you know, go to this website. We'll mention it again several times. Uh, so a lot of people like to, while we have the show, go into the website and follow us along our, our topics. So I encourage you to do that if it, if you're not driving. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but you've got, I th- thought it's really interesting, you've got a series of uh, webinars. Uh, they're usually just over about an hour long, and they do a lot of introductions and concept of forced appreciation and provide a roadmap on how to identify, implement the strategies in your business what is forced appreciation? Yeah, you know, again, forced appreciation is just, you know, that those proactive steps that you can do to increase the value of a property. And so, again, like we primarily focus on rezoning opportunities, um, site plan approvals, subdivisions, and then even some other creative nuanced approaches as well. But essentially, it's the proactive steps that we take to increase the value of the property, regardless of what is happening on the market-wide appreciation. So an example of that might be, 
if I'm yeah, if I'm more example, to put, it would be like a subdivision, you know, or you know, if you're like in rural areas and you're cutting these down to like ten acre lots, that'll appreciate. That'll cause some form of a forced appreciation in many instances, or um, changing the zoning to change the allowable land uses. That's usually a big one as well. So if I'm a landowner uh, and maybe I have a particular type of zoning and it's not really the highest and best use, which is the uh, major principle in land, uh, then I may want to uh, contact you and learn how to uh, maybe change my zoning and create more value for my property before I put it on the market. You know, a lot of times uh, people will uh, buy land and then they'll go through the due diligence period and, uh, and maybe didn't think it through. And now they're in there fighting a battle to have something rezoned, which, you know, if you take a more, like you say, proactive role uh, and position your property in a more positive, uh, you know, go ahead and get that approval, uh, then that's obviously where you can make some good gains. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the right idea, you know, and being able to do it proactively and be able to um, kind of change or increase the options that can be done on the property will certainly add value to it. That's right. So what is um, uh, advanced technology of rezoning? What's the advanced technology? Of, of rezoning. I'm following your modulars here. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, basically the thing that we do is that we try to utilize a lot of tools that we can to be able to identify these, you know, rezoning opportunities. And a lot of times it comes down to the resources that are on the city or county's website with their GIS mapping systems and things like that. But then also we're able to use a lot of data-driven approaches to kind of find these opportunities as well. Without getting too much into the weeds on it, the idea is that there's these national data aggregators that bring property data together, and we can use um, really specific search filters to really weed out a lot of the properties that won't qualify for zone changes or subdivisions or what have you, and we'll utilize those tools to be able to generate basically a list of properties that may qualify for these types of projects. Technology is crazy today, isn't it? Like, I've been doing this 30 years, you know, and we used to go to the mapping office and uh, and go pull a property card and then uh, take it over to one of the mapping people and and they go find a mylar, which is usually about two, three feet, a rectangle, and, and pull it up and then take the yellow photo paper and sandwich it and run it through a black light, and voila, you've got a yeah. uh, tax map with no top topography on it or anything else. And then right. you, you get one property, it might be on four maps, and, you know, you're sitting there with scotch tape trying to put them together and putting them on a window and then taking a, a topography map and sandwiching it with a pencil and drawing your topography on it. It's, it's, it's uh, gone a long ways from those days, I tell you. Uh, right. That's true. So in your webinar series, um, you've got, what, 15 points here that you cover? Yeah. And it's... Um, you introduce the force appreciation and you identify the uh, utilization of properties. And that was what we're talking about maybe with the GIS, right? Yeah, that's right. So we have like a, a free like webinar that's on our website. It's about an hour long and it's kind of broken up into different modules. And so people can watch these individual videos. So we have like a, a free webinar there. And then we have a series of um, kind of paid webinars that dive in much deeper into different topics relating to uh, forced appreciation strategies. And so 
we have those available as well. So if somebody's just brand new into the whole concept of this, I would definitely suggest getting on the website and just taking a look at that free webinar that we have, and that kind of gives you a really um, high-level overview of what the whole concept's all about. So you actually take them through each of these as a coach uh, on your on your uh, free site, right? That's or, correct. Okay. And then you go into project management and how that works, and, and then we talked about the force appreciation and the zoning uh, summary. Yep, that's right. And then you have a consulting arrangement fees. Uh, is there any states that you don't cover? Um, I think that covers everything. You know, I, I don't have um, – I, I don't – I'm very focused on what I do, you know. Like where we, where we operate in is a very niche part of the, the real estate industry. Yeah, I'd say. And so um, we are very much committed to providing service to help people understand the opportunities that are there. And so, again, we do it through a variety of due diligence services, but also, again, project management, helping people bring them through the process. So tell us your website again. Website is Tolosa, T-O-L-O-S-A, propertygroup.com. And how many years have you been doing this? I've been doing land development type stuff around here for just about 20 years. Okay. <clears throat> hey, our guest today is uh, Mike Marshall with Tolosa Property Group. Uh, this is Let's Talk Land. We'd like to thank our sponsors today, uh, landhub.com. View thousands of properties for sale at land.com. It's one of my favorites, and I've been with them since the beginning and uh, get a lot of business through it if you want to list your land or if you're looking for land anywhere in the country. And also our Acre Value uh, sponsor. They're the only website that you need to research land, and they've got a lot of value-added stuff too. So um, we'll... Catch you on the next segment. Mike, so let's say, for instance, somebody has a couple hundred acres and they're thinking that they want to do a subdivision in it. So what is the first thing to do? How do they determine if they need to do housing or if they can do condos? Where do they start? Sure, sure. So the first thing to really look at is to see whether or not your property has zoning attached to it at all. Um, some areas of the country, you know, you have um, zoning that applies if you live in a city, zoning if you applies if you live out in a county. So no matter what, there's zoning that applies. And then there's some parts of the country, Texas is an example of this, where you have zoning if you're inside a city, but once you step outside the city, there really is no zoning. And so that's the first thing to check is to see, you know, is there actually zoning where I live? And if there is, then that really dictates a lot about what, how the property can be used, whether it be for agriculture, residential, commercial, what have you. It'll all be dictated by zoning. If it doesn't, if you're in an area that doesn't, you know, have zoning, then the land uses are much more open and there's a lot more flexibility. But even if you're out in, like, say, the county areas outside a city, you're still going to have subdivision rules that will apply. And so in those situations, whether you're inside or outside the city, the goal is to be able to figure out a few things. One of them would be, what is my minimum lot width? So how wide does my lot have to be if I'm creating a new lot? So maybe it's 50 feet wide or 100 feet wide. And when I say the width, it's the width of the property as it meets a public roadway. So if you have a county-maintained road and you have, you know, 100 feet of frontage, and the, the rules say you 
have to have at least 50 feet, then theoretically you may be able to split the property into two lots. So you're looking at lot frontage is one thing. Then the next thing you're looking at is really the lot area, so how big the lot is. And so if you're in a zoning area, maybe they say, you know what, your lot for this zone can be, you know, 20,000 square feet, you know. And so if you have 40,000 square feet, theoretically, again, you can create two lots out of that. And so that's the two things that you're going to look at right at the beginning. If you're in an urbanized area with zoning, the third thing you're going to look at is what they call density, which is really the number of lots that you can get per acre. So if your density is, you know, density of two lots per acre, well, then you can get, you know, two lots on that acre. And if you have 20, if you have 20,000 square, sorry, 40,000 square feet and you have 20,000 square foot minimum lot size, you can get two lots there as a result. And then if you have, you know, 100 feet of width and your requirement is 50 feet, then you can have two lots as well. So you have to meet all three of those requirements. And once you do that, then you know how many lots you can get. But if you do the math and you find out that, hey, by lot area only, I can get three lots. And then by density, I could get three lots. But by lot frontage, I can only get two. Then you're only going to be able to get two out of it because you only you have to meet all three requirements. So they're always going to go to the lesser number or the lower number. So that's really the first like level of analysis, kind of looking at if I can subdivide my property, you know. And as Lou was mentioning earlier, you know, in a lot of portions or states throughout the country, there are um, allowances for you to go through the subdivision process without getting really the government approval. I refer to those as exempt subdivisions. Those are subdivisions that are exempt from the platting process. And these are the easiest types of subdivisions to do. And so if you have large acreage, then this is a great thing. Because if you have 100 acres and you're in North Carolina and you're in the county areas and you can break them down to 10-acre pieces, you could get 10 10-acre lots theoretically and do that just with a surveyor, creating a meets and bounds description, and then go and recording it at the county. There are other like requirements. Still, you have the lot frontage requirement as well that will play into it. But in general... By creating these 10-acre lots, you're going to be much better placed. You can create those subdivisions that much more easier. So a lot of states have that. There's about 16 or 17 states throughout the country that have some form of exemption for the platting process. So those are the easiest types of subdivisions there are. So that's kind of like the first bucket of subdivisions. And then the second bucket of subdivisions would be called minor subdivisions. And then the third one would be called major subdivisions. And major subdivisions are the ones that we think of when we have curbs and gutters and stormwater and parks and all these other things, these large master plan type communities. That would be a major subdivision. These minor subdivisions call, they kind of fall somewhere in between, and each jurisdiction has its own rules as to what constitutes a minor and major subdivision. But the primary difference for from a landowner's perspective is, is that a minor subdivision is going to be cheaper and faster to get approved than a major subdivision. And then an exempt subdivision, like the 10-acre type, is going to be even faster than a minor subdivision. So if you're trying to go and do something where it's like faster and, and cheaper, then the exempt subdivision is the way to go in that sense. However, you have to balance that out because typically the smaller the lot that you create, the more value that you're able to create as well in general. So the dollars per acre on a you know 10-acre parcel is going to be lower than the dollars per acre on a two-acre parcel in general. Not always be the case, but in general, that should be the case. And so that's why people want to subdivide, 
is they're creating value by capturing that difference in price per acre. So the smaller lot you can create, the better off you're going to be on the money side of the equation, but it's going to be longer and harder to go through that process comparatively to the others. So there's a balancing act that you're doing. So in the world of like forced appreciation strategies that we do, subdivisions are certainly a large part of that. And then within subdivisions, there's these three buckets, the exempt subdivisions, the minor subdivisions, and then the major subdivisions. So if someone wants to start a subdivision, is it best to start by calling you? Is that the first thing they should do once they've... Dis- well, yeah, well, they certainly can do that. You know, we do help people with that. But the reality, too, is, is that, you know, a civil engineer is a good step, or if not a civil engineer, a surveyor. Um, because if you're doing these 10-acre exempt subdivisions, you know, a surveyor is really all you need. I, I don't, I wouldn't really be able to help somebody too much on that um, because I'm just going to tell them, hey, you need a surveyor. They're going to do this, this, and this, and they're going to record it at the county. There's not a lot that I can do to kind of help somebody because that's a really, comparatively, that's a basic process or a simple process. Where I can start to really start helping people is when they get into the, the minor subdivisions and the major subdivisions. In those situations, they can certainly reach out to me and I can help. And then what I end up doing is I end up really representing the owner and I kind of represent them with regards to working with the engineers, working with the city or the county. And so I work on the owner's behalf in that regard so that way the owner doesn't have to struggle with working through the engineer, knowing how that process works, knowing if they're getting charged too much, knowing if it's getting delayed because of the engineer or because of the city or the county. So our role really is to help expedite the process and make it as affordable as possible for the owner to get through that. So what does a civil engineer do? Right. So civil engineers, they do a lot of different things. You know, they do everything from designing culverts for water all the way up to doing like subdivision maps like we're talking about here. And a lot of them specialize in certain things or they have a larger firm and they have people within that firm that specialize in certain things. So for the purposes of what we're talking about, a civil engineer would actually create the preliminary plat or the final plat that gets approved by the county in relationship to minor and major subdivisions. Okay. So the civil engineer is needed for minor and major subdivisions. For exempt subdivisions, you really only need the surveyor. Okay. And the engineer is, number one, they're licensed by the state, and so they're qualified to be able to put these maps together. And ultimately, the city or county will require that the maps that are submitted are submitted with the engineer stamp on there. So you, you or I or anybody else that's not an engineer would not be able to produce a map that's of the level of quality where the county or the city would actually sign off on it. It has to be under the stamp of a civil engineer that's licensed by the state. Mike, there's some other issues, too. First of all, about ETJ, extraterritorial jurisdiction, you know, it's mm-hmm. the, sometimes those, uh, especially if they you know, uh, been around for a while, they've already established the zoning for that because it's not utilized by the city in terms of taxation or services like police and fire services. But uh, what it is is they're current controlling uh, industry and residential and commercial uh, areas in terms of growth uh, to add to their city. And the second thing is, uh, is uh, we always run into when you're in a rural area, you don't have infrastructure. Uh, you may have water, but you won't have sewer. Uh, you know, some some rural areas will have the water because water is usually about 80% of the cost of the utilities, 
and because water flows up and down, but when you got when you've got uh, septic, uh, you know you got lift stations for uh, for irregular topography. So you know that's important, and you run across that. And then of course the perk test, because uh, if you don't have the septic system, uh, you're going to have to put in a, a, a perkable site for an in-ground septic system. So uh, <clears throat> I don't know. One thing that I always do in looking at uh, breaking up land. I go ahead and do the soils work first, and then that's how I determine how I'm going to break the property. Uh, yeah, absolutely. A lot of jurisdictions won't even let you subdivide until you've shown that the site will per site will actually perk, right? Or that there's water that's provided, or something like that. So a lot of times they won't even allow you to um, create the lot. In those circumstances where they do allow you to create the lot, it's still wise to go about that exact process that you mentioned. Just if nothing else, from a marketability standpoint. It's just more marketable, obviously, if you can tell somebody that, yeah, the site perk and there's, you, know, you can dig a well or whatever it happens to be. If you can answer the utilities question, then I, that certainly makes the lot far more valuable. Right. And then always in my classes, I teach about, you know, the rules of land. You know, where that is, it's called the subdivision laws of each jurisdiction. So I always say if you're going to go buy a board game you never played before, what's the first thing you do? And most people say, you read the rules. They say, no, you open the box first, and then you read the rules. But you'll find <laughs> but you'll yeah. find there, Mike, you'll find all these things you're talking about, about your lot sizes, your, you know, what's required in terms of presentation, in terms of mapping, uh, processes, uh, setbacks, and uh, all the requirements, paved roads, not paved roads, utilities, not utilities. So uh, that's, that's, I don't know if every jurisdiction has that. I know I've done consulting around the country, and usually where I, have gone. I've always been able to pull that up online, so it's a good guide <clears throat> if you're going to be involved in land, land development, and land, land uh, purchasing or selling. Mike, what's the difference in a major and a minor subdivision? You know, that's a great question. You know, every jurisdiction has different rules that separates those two categories. Um, typically, it's a lot to do with the types of improvements that you're proposing. So in some instances, if you're proposing to build a roadway in, that might trigger the major subdivision um, qualification, I guess, and then you have to do that process. Or if you don't do a roadway or anything along those lines, then you may be able to do it just with a minor subdivision. The other thing that will trigger you know, the minor versus major is the number of lots that are being created. So in some jurisdictions, it's, you know, if you're creating four or fewer lots, then there's a minor process. If you're creating five or more, it's a major process. But the answer ultimately is that the subdivision regulations for each jurisdiction will dictate what distinguishes one from the other. Just like in our area, Surrey and Stokes, you can do the 10 acres and you can do up to four lots in one. You can do up to five lots in, two, in the other county, less than 10 acres. So, but in that case, you still have to get a plat recorded. Right, yeah, you're right. There's more that goes into it than certainly just the, the regulations on lot size and things like that, because then you said topography plays into it. There may be environmental issues like wetlands or floodway, and there's a variety of other things that play into it as you do your analysis. Minnows. Yeah. <laughs> Lou yeah. knows about minnows. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I did one, and uh, it was, uh, had a, Water course going through uh, about two thirds into the property, and um, and we broke up lots coming in, and then the owner said, "I want to do a bicycle where you got 30 foot access and join into these four and five acre tracks in the back." 
<clears throat> and we had the road built. We had everything done. Engineers signed off, environmental and road control. And my owner gets a call that uh, the soil and water lady had, uh, wanted to come out and inspect the property. So I met her out there, and she put her boots on and her little net, and she went down to the creek, and she says, well, she said, I see you got 12 lots coming off this right here, 30 feet each. She said, first of all, you can't put a tile in because little fishies won't go across the tile, which they've been doing for a long time. And second of all, I'm going to give you 100 feet, so you can either cross it uh, using that 100 feet as many times, but staying at least 30 feet. And I said, okay. So then we go up to another spring head that's going under the road. She gets out and, with her boots and the little thing, and she goes up. She says, by the way, these one-acre lots, you have to need, leave the natural vegetation at least 50 feet from the watercourse. It's only a 100-foot lot. And she said, and you got to move the uh, erosion control, change the pits here, move the pits over there, the screening over here. I said, ma'am, here's my signed-off report. I said, I can't serve two masters. I said, if I go and do what you want me to do, then the uh, EPA's going to come and find me because I've changed their, their uh, layout. And if I don't do what you're going to do, you're going to find me for not doing it. I said, you know, where's, where's the EPA office versus yours? She said, it's down the hall. I said, well, you guys go meet and sit one, see which one can control this project here and let me know because I can't serve two masters. <laughs> but, you know, right. it's... There's always something fun about it. That is very true. That is very true. You know, lands are very complicated. I know in real estate classes here in North Carolina, they'll throw up a side that says land is the most complicated of all real estate transactions. And the more I do these shows, the more I teach, the more I learn, uh, you know, I'm finding that that's true. I mean, just the due diligence process. I just read a book and there was over 100 identified potential due diligence processes and in, in, in purchasing or marketing land, and uh, that's a lot to learn. Yeah, absolutely there is. So what's the ugliest thing you've ever run into that just drove you out of your mind and you wished you'd never seen it? Teresa, you can't ask him that I know question. that there's that. Teresa. It's always that somewhere. Well, he can be uh, vague. You, you don't want him to make it up. You want a real story, don't you? I, I want something vague. Like what's a nightmare situation? He's thinking. No bad dreams. <laughs> Mike, did we lose you? Yep, we're still here. Oh, okay. Could you hear my question? I don't think he can hear me. Ask him. Michael, can you hear Teresa okay? Uh, you know what? I'm having a hard time hearing. I apologize. That's okay. I'll, I, th I think I have the louder voice. She was wanting you to relate to our audience <clears throat> some of the experiences you had, and maybe one of those specifically that kept you up and, and your partners all night and or weeks uh, because of the complications of it. Yeah, you know, I think one of um, one of the more recent ones, and quite honestly, it's it was in a town that's not too far from you guys, actually. Um, we had a we situation that. where we were uh, trying to rezone a property, and um, we met with the, the mayor and city manager and had, like, this nice luncheon and everything like that, trying to present what we were trying to do with our project. Ultimately, they were very much in support of it. Um, we had a, another meeting with them at one point um, very early on, and they were still in support of it. And so we went through this whole process where we got all the support from the city staff, 
as well as um, the elected officials. And so we were feeling really good about it. And the city manager kept talking about how much he loved the, the idea of uh, rezoning this property. And so ultimately it was sounding really good. And then we made it to the planning commission and the planning commission ended up um, denying it or recommending that it be denied by city council. And then ultimately it was denied by city council. And it was a really hard thing in that we had done everything that we could do to get assurance from, you know, the city manager and the mayor and everything that there was a large level of support and staff was very much in support of it. And ultimately it got denied and it was a very good reminder of the fact that, you know, no matter what you're told by politicians or staff or anything like that, that these processes that are discretionary in nature, ones that go to the planning commission or city council, that they could really turn on a dime um, kind of, you know, unexpectedly. And so that was one of the lessons that came out of it. Another lesson is, is like, you know, really in these types of situations where projects where the surrounding property owners are notified of what you're trying to do, you have to be aware that now you're exposing yourself to criticism and opposition to your project. And in general, most people don't want to see things change in their backyard, you know, the whole symbiotic effect. And so they don't really don't want to see things change. And so that's what happened here is that a lot of people came out and even though we weren't proposing a specific development at that time, we were just proposing the rezone, people were just fundamentally, you know, opposed to it. And regardless of the technical aspects of, like, the city's process or anything along those lines of what the city needed, the elected officials were just um, opposed to it because they just they were opposed to the notion of change, ultimately, is what I think it came down to. And so, like I said, the main lesson is, is that, you know, really try to understand which projects require public outreach and which ones don't. And if yours does require public outreach, there does need to be some effort to probably reach out to those people in the neighborhood beforehand, even if the city or the county are telling you that that's not necessary. A lot of legwork in it, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, yeah, all that work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, But you've actually found a niche in what you're doing because you have the experience from your background and now applied application with the projects that you've done. So, you know, with with your company and what you do, Mike, it seems to me you can shortcut a lot of this stuff with advice and, and help uh, with your staff. How many how many people work in your company? Yeah, surprisingly, there's only three of us, not we're, that many. Yeah. So, but we're able to do a lot with that because we end up leveraging, like, resources that are local on the ground, like I was mentioning earlier. Right. And so we're able to, to do quite a lot with a smaller staff. Mention your website again. Yeah, website is Tolosa Property Group, T-O-L-O-S-A, propertygroup.com. Okay. As long as you're not driving, go to that site and you can follow us along here. So what are you learning, Teresa? Well, it's been really interesting, and I have learned about where to start with subdivisions and probably just call Mike. Just call Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've learned not to do the traditional subdivision, the major subdivisions, and stick with the uh, the uh, the rural 10 acres. And then I do what's called flex property. I'll go design a subdivision uh, and, you know, and draw it out and advertise it and price it per acre. And, you know, talk about the amenities. And when a buyer comes and, you know, maybe they don't have a budget for a 15-acre track or a 20-acre track, you know, I'll allow them to reconstitute what I'm doing 
and uh, as long as I can sell the rest of it is, is the uh, caveat. But, but I've been very successful with this, and that way I've been able to accommodate more buyers and move projects along quicker. Uh, where I, I call it flex property, where the buyer actually gets involved in, in, in designing the property that they want. You know, they want more road frontage, or they more, want more uh, water course, or they want more cleared area, uh, they want more views, or whatever the situation is. And, and I've been doing that for years, as opposed just to going ahead and deciding what to do and putting it on the market and take it or leave it. Uh, it's worked very, very, very uh, successful. And actually, I end up making more money for the owner and doing that, or myself, if I'm developing it. Yeah, that's great. So uh, there's a lot to learn. A lot to learn. Mm -hmm. So what's your favorite part of your job? What gets you up in the morning, Mike? You know what? I think I enjoy really just helping people. You yeah, know? I think me that's too. the big thing. You know, um, you know I, could, I could utilize these strategies and do only my own projects and kind of you know, keep it close-knit. Um, but I eventually figured out that I get more enjoyment really utilizing the skills, knowledge, and ability that I have to really help other people. And so working with other investors and landowners, that is certainly, like, the most enjoyable part. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm along with on that. It's not about the money uh, necessarily, but uh, just watching people be satisfied with your, with your uh, advice. And, and most people listen to you. It's like I said, there's very few people that's trained and, and, and the world out there, and in fact, I'm putting together as we speak a, um, a uh, education, land education school, uh, internationally actually, uh, for all types, and we'll invite you to be part of that too, Mike, so we can share your information to a wider audience for you. But uh, yeah, That's great. How many people are doing what you're doing? Do you have any competition out there? Or? Yeah, yeah, there are. You know, there are people that are like professional consultants and things of that nature. I just think that the way that they set their business up and operate, it's much more localized. Um, so they're very much experts in, in one particular market or a couple different markets. And so that's where they operate. And then what we do is more trying to connect directly with the investors and landowners and work with them and then um, kind of help facilitate their project a little bit from a distance. But it helps us be more of an owner's rep more than being just a consultant. Right. And so we're able to really act on their accord and their behalf a lot easier as a result of that. And it, so um, that tends to work really well for us. Yeah, and you're reaching a larger audience by doing this, too. You're reaching a very much larger audience by uh, your company and what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. With your seminars and so on. I'm anxious to uh, take one. And uh, anyone listening can go to that website and sign up for he's got one that's free and he's got one that's more advanced it's all on the website so uh, make sure right. you check that out uh, I mean anybody that owns property I mean it blows my mind they don't have any idea what it's worth or what you can do with it you know it's just yeah. <laughs> help <laughs> help and you know and unfortunately in our industry uh, there's no land education that's why I want to start this school other oh, Realtors Land Institute We've been around 79 years uh, and only have 2,000 members, so uh, it's a pretty tight-knit group. And uh, we have an annual conference that uh, moves around. I think we'll be in uh, Louisville, Kentucky next year. We're in uh, Denver last year, and uh, we'll have four or 500 of our members and vendors and suppliers and, and uh, guest speakers and seminars and, and swapping ideas, and it's uh, 
It's a very neat group. So, Mike, with about a minute left, um, how would you like to close out your show? Yeah, you know, I just basically say that, you know, this whole world of entitlements is something that's new to a lot of investors, obviously. Um, and I would just encourage people to really do whatever you can to understand how your property can be used. You know, whether that's a property you own now or it's one that you're looking at, really understand how the property can be used moving forward so that way you can understand the potential that's there, whether you actually bring that to fruition or a future buyer brings it to fruition. Regardless, understanding what can be done with the property is just going to allow you to maximize its value for yourself moving forward. And so whether that's working with us or working with anybody else for that matter, I just really encourage people to kind of educate themselves on their local zoning code and understand exactly what they can do and not do with their property. Great, Mike. How do they get in touch with you? Absolutely. The best way is to reach out to me via email at mike at tolosapropertygroup.com. All right. And then your email address? That was it. And you Okay. We've talked about the website. Sorry, I fell asleep there for a second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you've been a great guest today, and thank you for sharing this. It's just, it's just an area I never even thought about. Uh, it's real oh, important. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. No, but it's real important. I mean, you know, you may have been, most, most, most land is inherited. Uh, according to statistics, and a lot of people have no idea what to do with it, uh, and it may be land exactly right. across that's country. We want to help people with. Yeah, and that's exactly it. That's like, so, thank you for joining us today. Let us know how you like the show. All questions and comments are welcome. This show is for the public, and most importantly, for real estate agents who do not have a source of land education. All of our shows can be found on our master website, www.letstalkland.net. That's .net. Spotify or Podbean. Teresa, how do they get in touch with you? They can call me at 336-209-2937 or email me at teresa.mylandpro at gmail.com. And my email is lou, L-O-U, at mylandpro.com. My phone is, cell phone is 336-669-1405. Our company website is www.mylandpro, mylandpro.com. Hey, we'd like to thank our sponsors, this, this morning, landhub.com. Are you looking to buy or sell land? Landhub.com previews thousands of properties nationwide and Acre Value. If you want to know who owns the field down the road or what it sold for last year, the best place to research land is all free is acrevalue.com. Hey, Rodney, how do you get in touch with us here at the station? Well, Lou, they can go to our website. Go to WKTE1090.com, and also they can download the Simple Radio app and hear us anywhere in the universe. Oh, we've moved it out. Yes, we moved it out. Oh, the whole. Yeah. I mean, like if you're on Mars or something? or Sure. Mm -hmm. That's just our universe. Yeah. Not the whole universe. Well, probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. We don't know, do we? Yeah, we don't know yet. <laughs> no. But anywhere in the world. Simple even radio in app. Even in Texas. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what type of music do we play at WKTE 1090? Uh, beach and oldies. Only happy music. Teresa, what do you think? About what? Being happy. <laughs> She's in her own little world I love now. being happy. I'm looking at Mike's website. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> and we've won some nice awards. Yeah. What was it, eight years in a row? Is it eight already? God, am I really that old? Yeah. No, I'm, not that old. Just time flies. It sure does. When you're Are having... you older than eight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Oh goodness! <laughs> and you won some nice. You won a nice award. Yeah, the Reader's Choice Announcer of the Year award. Announcer of the Year. Mm -hmm. Does that mean like you were competing with other people, or you were the yes. only one? Well, I don't know. They didn't really they didn't say that. <laughs> well, congratulations on your award. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for joining us this morning, and uh, we'll see you next week. God bless you, and have a good day.